Jesus died on the cross for me. I learned that in Sunday school. I learned it in every single Sunday school class that I was in. And it was reinforced every single vacation Bible school. Jesus died for me. But for years, I just didn't really get it. Jesus died for me, but uh, what does that mean? Turn with me to John chapter 19. One of, the, one of the joys of being a dad is when you realize that one of your kids gets it. You know, or at least they're in the process of getting it. You can tell that they're grasping certain biblical truths. Seeing that for me, uh, there's nothing like that. And my daughter has several pet names for me, if you can imagine. And uh, I keep this little napkin from Starbucks that she wrote a note on here for me. Two of my pet names... I love my Dito, and D loves me too. She's right. Uh, Dito, that's one of my names. D is another. But I think my favorite name she gives me, my favorite pet name, is my favorite daddy that I can see. Because she's lived long enough. More than six and a half, but not quite seven years. That's how she puts it. She's lived long enough to know that the best daddy, daddy that she's got isn't me. It's not me. It's her heavenly father. So I love it when she calls me that. My favorite daddy that I can see. And I'm telling you, this girl, she has read, as of yesterday, she had read eight chapters in Genesis this week. So you guys better get on the ball. In the ESV, I mean, I'm not talking to children's Bible. It's amazing. She's about to get to the scene where Noah is found naked and drunk. And I'm just, I don't, right in her thinking, what do we do with screening our kids in their Bible reading? What about Judah and Tamar? Anyway, never mind. Uh, Hayden, he's four. He's a little different. Now, he gets it almost at times. And he's had quite a big week. We've had two very specific prayers that we've prayed for Hayden that God has answered dramatically and really in a moving way. But yesterday he was in rare form. Uh, I came home and, and he had had an eye problem yesterday morning. His eye couldn't even open his eye. We have no idea what happened. He had squirt Sprite in his eye the night before. So I don't know if Sprite had some lasting effect on his eye. But, uh, but he, he couldn't open his eye in the morning. Yesterday morning he couldn't open his eye. He was trying to. Just tears would leak out of it. That was it. And uh, so his mom prayed for him and laid him down in the bed. One minute later he comes out. Mama, my eyes aren't broken anymore. Mama, my eye works. The nap fixed my eye. No, Jesus fixed your eye, baby. You know, and, and so he was telling me how he was so excited about sleeping. He wanted to sleep, but he couldn't sleep because he had to poo-poo. And I don't know how this came up, but he said, Dad, I had to poo-poo. And then he told me, he was really proud about this. Guys are like this, girls. Um, Dad, I poo-pooed, and it was so big. That it, was, it, w- it got bigger and bigger in conversation. It was so big. And then, you know, my son's only like, Yay tall. Anyway, he said, Dad, it was like, and you can see his wheels turning, it was like up here, and it went down, 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 and came out. <laughs> that night, I had another episode with Hayden. That night, I can't believe this is going to be in a podcast. Uh, that night, Hayden, I sit Hayden and Bryn down, and I'm trying to work through some of the scenes of Holy Week with, uh, with my kids. And I'm telling them, about the cross, the crucifixion scene from Luke's gospel. And I talk about how Jesus was nailed on the cross by these really mean guys. He was nailed on the cross. And then he prayed and said, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. 
And so I said, Hayden, now let, let's, just, let's just try to pretend something. Let's pretend, Hayden, that you're Jesus, okay? And I'm going to nail you to the cross. You ready? And I took this little styrofoam like sword thing we had. I said, all right, Hayden, stand up and put your arms up like this. And I like n- fake nailed his arms. He thought it was really fun, actually. So it kind of killed the moment a bit. But, but I was nailing his hands up on the, on the imaginary cross, nailing his feet. I kind of poked my finger up on the top of his foot so it hurt a little bit. And I'm nailing, putting a nail in your feet, son. This hurts, right? He's laughing. It hurts. And, and I'm, so I'm nailing him on the tree. And I said, then these mean guys nailed you on the tree. And then they're spitting at you and being so mean to you. And Hayden, what would you do to mean guys if they did that to you? And he said, oh, 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 I would, I would get that sword and I would whack him on the face and I would get him and then I would put, the, and, then, and then that, then I would, I would put them on that cross. And my, my daughter says, but Hayden, you're too little. You can't get them on the cross. And he said, oh, I'll get a stool. I'll get a stool and I'll put them on the cross like that. But she said, but you're too little. You can't do that. And I said, well, actually, Hayden, if you were Jesus, you could do that. Because Jesus is strong. So you could have done that. But Hayden, that's not what Jesus did. He said, Father, forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. Now, I immediately feel guilty because I took him to see Kung Fu Panda twice. And we know what you do with the mean guys. You take Kung Fu and you beat them up. You know, that's what he's learned. And I was reminded again last night of just how the cross messes everything I think up. And I just don't completely get it. Jesus died on the cross for me. What does that mean? You're not going to fully get it tonight after the message. I don't fully have it. But I'm hoping we'll be a little closer to getting it. Pray with me. Lord, I stand before you to ask you something. I'm asking for my sake and for everyone in the room. I'm asking of you, Lord, to show us what this means. To show us what the cross means. To show us what your death means. And I also ask, God, that you would stir us by your Spirit, the Spirit of truth, who guides us into all truth. Stir our hearts, and if we have never tasted what the cross offers, there's someone here, Lord, who has not tasted that sweetness. And I ask that they would taste it tonight. It's your words we want to hear. They're the only words of worth. So speak them. In the name of Jesus, our Lord, we pray. Amen. John chapter 19. I'm going to begin reading verse 16. So he, this is Pilate, delivered him over to be crucified. So they took Jesus and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with him two others, one on either side, 
and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. And it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am king of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, Let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This is to fulfill the scripture which says, They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Pause here for a moment. Remember from last week, if you were here, that Pilate, who, by the way, was a corrupt scoundrel and not to be mistaken as a good guy, all right? But last week we looked at how Pilate stood before the Jews, the Jewish leaders, and said, Behold the man. And this was taken from 1 Samuel. This is when God points out to Samuel the prophet, Saul, the soon-to-be king. Behold the man. In other words, here's the king. Here's the king of your people. Pilate has just said, behold the man. And then a little bit later he said, behold your king to the Jewish people. And at the very moment that Pilate presented Jesus as the king to the Jews, we're told that was the moment when the priests in the temple began to kill, to slaughter the sacrificial Passover lambs in the temple. Behold your king. And then they started to slaughter the lambs. And then the Jews demand that Jesus be slain as those lambs are being slain. And they profess their allegiance not to the Messiah King, Jesus, but to the pagan king, Caesar. We have no king but Caesar. That's what's just happened. And it brings us to verse 16. Even though Jesus has been brutally flogged, that happened a little bit earlier. We see in verse 17 that he's carrying his own cross. And in the other Gospels, the soldiers end up enlisting help from a passerby named Simon. They get him to help Jesus because probably from how weakened he is from the loss of blood, from the flogging, he, he's not able to carry it. But John's emphasis is on here, Jesus carrying his cross. He's wanting to emphasize the sovereignty of Jesus, his control over all the gruesome events taking place around him. We read also that there are two other People crucified with Jesus. He is positioned, however, in the center of them. And Pilate places this, uh, this placard, basically. He affixes it to the top post of that cross. It reads, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. It's written in Greek, which is the language of trade and commerce. It's written in Latin, the language of power and politics. It's also written in Aramaic, which is the language of the local folk, right? And the Jews, they complained. They want Pilate to edit that placard. Don't write, he said that he is the king of the Jews. Just say, he said he was the king of the Jews. But Pilate says, what I've written, I've written. And every other time you find that language in John, it's a reference to Scripture being fulfilled. And speaking of Scripture being fulfilled, we see that the soldiers and what they're doing with his garments, that's also a fulfillment of Scripture. One of the Psalms, Psalm 22. Here's what's happening then in verses 16 through 24. Jesus, in sovereign control of his own destiny, he is presented to the world in 
international form, in multinational languages, he's presented to the world as the messianic king. Behold your king, Jesus has just been proclaimed as by Pilate. And now that kingship is proclaimed in multiple languages so that every passerby, remember there's a lot of them, it's Passover, so that every passerby could read it and understand it in those different languages. And what's so striking is that the site, the location of his coronation is not a temple, it's not a palace, but it's Golgotha, the place of a skull. And the proclamation of his kingship is not announced by some royal emissary sent to bring good news or gospel. It's announced by a board nailed to the top of a cross. But all these paradoxes, all these awful things... They seem to be part of Christ's kingship, his unique kingship. All of this is in fulfillment of Scripture. What I have written, I have written, Pilate says, and we see that God is fulfilling the promises of Scripture through an idol-serving Roman governor and through an angry mob of religious leaders. So here's some encouraging news for you. There's no circumstance in your life Too brutal, nothing too devastating in your life that God cannot use to fulfill His purposes in your life. No no matter how hopeless your situation, your circumstances, no matter how brutal or gruesome, God is sovereign and He's in control over those circumstances and through those circumstances, He can work wonders. The Gospel of John portrays the crucifixion of Jesus as the moment of his greatest glory, as the moment of his exaltation. And this is bizarre that you could do this, that you could talk about Jesus and his being lifted up on the cross as a form of being lifted up in exaltation, but that's exactly what John does. Crucifixion was designed to be the epitome of public humiliation and shame. And they're dividing his garment to the base of the cross because Jesus is naked. They stripped the victims of crucifixion of their clothes. And you're put there in a very visible place where so many people could see you. If you had to urinate, if you had to defecate, I mean, you just had to do it right there, bloody and naked, for all the world to see. But for John, this foul, shameful moment is actually the moment when the world's true king is exalted and glorified. It's not a moment of shame, but of glory. If God can work through the crucifixion of his son, if he can make the cross beautiful, then he can work through whatever misery there is in your life right now. And that misery, the frustration, anxiety, exhaustion, pain, it might even be the appointed means by which he works his wonders in your life. Praise God. That brings us to the next section we're looking at, where most of our attention is going to be tonight. John 19, let's go to the next part of chapter, or verse 24. They've divided his garments picking up that next part of verse 24. So the soldiers did these things. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas and Mary Magdalene. 
When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, that's the disciple who wrote this gospel, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from then hour the disciple took her to his own. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said, To fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there. So they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Since it was the day of preparation, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear. And at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true. And he knows that he's telling the truth. That you also may believe. For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. Let's work through this a bit. The soldiers are there, they're dividing his garments. Then we see in contrast to them that there are some other people standing around the foot of the cross near Jesus. There's a number of Marys who are standing around there. And then there's this disciple, the one whom Jesus loved. I'll refer to him as the beloved disciple. Some may also refer to him as John, but he refers to himself here as the beloved disciple, so that's how I'm going to refer to him. And Jesus addresses his mother, not as mother, not as mom, but as woman. Guys, if you went home this weekend for break and you saw your mom, and she says, hey, baby, or sweetie, or honey, whatever she calls you, and you say, hey, woman, How's that kind of go over? <laughs> Some of you will be worse than for others. <laughs> this isn't the kind of redneck address, right? It's not woman. That's not what Jesus is doing. All right? And the term is Greek, gunai, and it's actually, uh, it could be a term of, uh, of affection, all right? A term of respect. But he doesn't call her mom. He doesn't refer to his mother. He refers to her as woman. It's interesting. He has a scene where he says, Behold your mother, the beloved disciple, and she is to behold him. It's a scene where actually Jesus places his mother into the care of this disciple. He's actually forming a new community. We read that after this, Jesus knew that everything was finished. And that to fulfill scripture, he, uh, he speaks through what were surely parched lips. And he says, I thirst. You know, I almost didn't bring this water up here, knowing I was going to preach on this. And here I am, holding cold water in my hands, reading about Jesus saying, I thirst. He says, I thirst. 
there's this jar of uh, something called oxos. Right? It's this cheap, sour, vinegary wine stuff. Sounds appealing, doesn't it? It's probably there because soldiers would drink this. I mean, it's pretty cheap. So soldiers probably brought a jar of it, a jug of it out. So that while they're working in the heat, you know, they have something to drink. They dip a sponge into this stuff and they wrap the sponge around a plant they call hyssop. They stick it up to his mouth. It's odd that they would use hyssop. Hyssop, it's just this flimsy, bushy little thing, right? It doesn't have much of a stalk. I don't know how they wrap a sponge around it, but still, they use hyssop. And our Lord sips the sour wine from the sponge and says, It is finished. And bows his head and he gave over his spirit. What does all this mean? Hold your place there in John 19 and now turn to John chapter 2. Our brother Marcus, he is working here at our church. He's doing some stuff to help us out with UCF. He read this scene a little bit, a little bit earlier. There's another place in this gospel where we find the mother of Jesus, wine, and the threat of thirst happening. It's this passage here in John 2 that Marcus read. We find these three and some other parallels in this very first sign that Jesus performed in John's gospel and turning water into wine at this wedding in a village called Cana. Let's read it together. John 2, 1 through 11. I know you've just read this, but you can't read it enough. On the third day, that sounds vaguely familiar. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. And when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus, she's never referred to as Mary in John's gospel. The mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. It's always good advice. Verse 6. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now it become wine and did not know where it came from. Where something or someone comes from is always important in John. That the servants who had drawn the water knew. The master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first. When the people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This the first of his signs Jesus did at Canaan, Galilee. And manifested his glory. And his disciples believed in him. Now we've mentioned here at UCF before that when you host a meal in the ancient world, it's a very big deal. But when you host a wedding feast... For your friends, your neighbors, your family members, the family members of the person your son or daughter is about to get married to. And this is a huge deal. And at this wedding party, social disaster strikes. I mean, running out of wine? You don't do this. For years, that family is going to be remembered as the folks who ran out of wine at their daughter's wedding. Can you imagine this? I mean, social Faux pas. Microsoft Word did not know how to spell faux pas. Neither did I when I was typing this thing up. But this is a huge one, all right? Huge mistake. And Jesus' mother, as many mothers are, he's in the know. 
She's in the know. She's aware of the problem. She goes to Jesus. They have no wine. And how does he address her? What does he say to her? Mom. It's not what he says. Woman. And he says, my hour has not yet come. What does the hour refer to almost always in John's gospel? And he guesses the crucifixion. Almost every instance in John, the hour is referring to the crucifixion. All right? But Jesus does do something here behind the scenes. He sees these uh, six huge water containers. He has his servants fill those water jars up and they fill them up to the brim. Up to the brim. Whatever he's about to do, he's going to do it abundantly. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. The servants there, they fill the water jars up with water. Then Jesus tells them to draw out that water. Take it to the MC, right? The master of the ceremony, the master of the feast. And this word for drawing out, antleo in the Greek, if you're curious, all right? Uh, This word only appears in three places in the Old Testament. Two places are at wedding-type scenes. They appear at well scenes. And guys, back in the olden days, if you wanted to find a girl, I would suggest that you would have gone to a well, all right? This is where Moses met Zipporah, his wife. He's drawing water, antleo. That's the word. Drawing water, he meets Zipporah. Abraham sends his servant to go find a wife for his son Isaac. He finds Rebekah at a well, drawing water. The other place it appears in the Old Testament, Isaiah 12, 3. With joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. The word also appears in John 4. Jesus runs into the Samaritan woman, right? She's beside the old well of Jacob. And he tells her that the water she could draw from him as a water source is living water. And whoever drinks the water that I will give him will never be thirsty forever. Like drinking from the wells of the waters of salvation. And that water you get from Jesus will be a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Using the same word for drawing out water... The servants at Cana, they draw water out from these stone water jars. They take it to the master of the ceremony. It's no longer water. It's wine. And it's not just wine. What kind of wine is this? It's good wine. I don't know much about wine. But this guy knew stuff about wine. That's his job. It's good wine. Guys, Jesus doesn't make bad wine. Now, I grew up Baptist. I'm not really sure what the application of this is. But I know this. It was good wine. So good, in fact, that the bridegroom gets in trouble with the master of the ceremony. You saved the good stuff till later. You're supposed to serve it first. Because a lot of these people are drinking too much wine. They're not going to know what the good stuff tastes like, right? That's the point here. But from this, Jesus manifests his glory. And remember, glory in the Gospel of John is rooted in cross good story Andy this John 2 story it's a great story what does it mean what does it have to do with the cross let's notice the connections between Cana and the cross here we have the mother of Jesus she only appears here and at the foot of the cross we have Jesus addressing her both at Cana and at Golgotha as woman not his mother when he responds to his mother in Cana he refers to his hour that hour is the moment at at Golgotha, the moment on the cross. Notice that both scenes, of course, include wine, but 
Whereas Jesus produces good wine in up to the brim abundance in John 2, he himself slurps sour wine from a sponge at the cross. The transformation of water to wine back at Cana, it manifests his glory. And then in John's gospel, glory, of course, is always connected to the cross, which we see in John 19. So there's a clear connection. You're convinced, right? I hope you're convinced. There's a connection between John 2 and John 19. Great. There's a connection. What does it mean? Now turn back to John 19. After this account of Jesus dying, I thirst. It is finished. He gave up his spirit. After this, We're reminded again about the timing of all of it. This is the day when the Passover lambs are being slain. At the very moment Jesus is thirsting. At the very moment Jesus is saying it is finished. The lambs were being slain for Passover. The next day, according to John's chronology here, the next day is a Sabbath. And Deuteronomy has told the Jews, look, you can't leave dead bodies hanging. You can't leave them out in public. You've got to bury them. You can't do this on high days, on holy days, on Sabbath during festival times. It could bring a curse on the land. So, they're good Jews, right? These Jewish leaders. So pious, so meticulous, so careful in maintaining all of their noble religious commitments. They go to Pilate. They say, we have to have these guys down out from public and buried, all right? We've got to get these guys off the cross. Tomorrow's the Sabbath. Go break their legs. Death by crucifixion. It was ultimately death by asphyxiation. Death by not being able to breathe. Um, I mean, the nails were very painful, of course. I mean, being hanging there was painful. The flogging that sometimes would happen beforehand, that was very painful. Of course, Jesus, he has the crown of thorns wrapped around his head. Very, very painful, but ultimate death would have been due to asphyxiation because when you're placed in this position and your weight is hanging like this it puts strain in your lungs and you can't breathe as well so what you have to do to get your breath is push up on the nails driven through your feet to get breath before you set back down again and so surefire way to make sure the people on the cross end up dying and they could last for days on the cross alive so what they would do is they would break the legs disabling them from doing this to catch their breath. So the Roman soldiers, they start clubbing legs at Golgotha. But when they get to Jesus, they notice he's already expired, probably dying sooner than the others because of the awful blood loss from the flogging. And one of the soldiers then jabs a spear into his side, and John tells us that out from the womb flow both blood and water. What does this mean? We're told in verses 36 to 37 that the unbroken bones of Jesus and that the piercing of his side, both of these moments, they fulfill Scripture. Not one of his bones will be broken. The primary source for this is from Exodus 12, Numbers 9. Not one of his bones will be broken. This is where the law describes not a person but an animal. Not one of his bones shall be broken. The reference is not to a person, but to an animal. It's to the Passover lamb. 
Slay the lamb for the Passover. Don't break any of its bones. And also, Moses wrote in Exodus 12, after you've killed the Passover lamb, dip a plant called hyssop into the blood of that lamb. And with the hyssop, smear the blood over the doorpost and on the doorpost of your house that the wrath of God may pass over you on this night in Egypt. Jesus receives his final drink from hyssop. His bones are not broken. All of this because he is the final, the ultimate Passover lamb. Behold the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John the Baptist cried out in chapter 1. That's why the scripture is fulfilled about his bones not being broken. That's why he's drinking from hyssop. Which would not have been a very good plant for hanging a sponge. And the piercing of his side. This is to fulfill a passage in Zechariah. Where it appears as though God himself is pierced by his people. But on that day, according to Zechariah 13.1. On the same day when God or the king is pierced. On that day there shall be a fountain opened for the house of David. And the inhabitants of Jerusalem to Cleanse them from sin and all uncleanness. So what does this mean? What's happening is Jesus dies on the cross. Remember those stone water jars back in John chapter 2. Throughout this gospel, all throughout the gospel, we see Jesus offering something superior than just normal water, than just the normal means by which people get along in the world. He uses the water at Cana, To produce good wine. He replaces that water with wine. When we see John the Baptist in chapter 1, he's emphasizing the baptism of the Spirit Jesus offers over the baptism by water that he offers. We see Jesus offering to the Samaritan woman a superior water to what she can get out of Jacob's well in chapter 4. In chapter 5, we see Jesus coming to a man. He keeps trying to get to the waters of the pool of Bethesda so that he'll be healed. They're supposed to have healing qualities. He can never get to it. He doesn't need it because Jesus is there. He offers something superior to what the Bethesda waters can offer him. In chapter 7, Jesus cries out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, out of his belly will flow rivers of living water. Over and over, Jesus is seen as superior to water offered by other sources, as replacing the means of fulfillment, the means of nourishment that people are trying to find in their world. And do you remember what those stone water jars were there for? What was the purpose of the stone water jars in John chapter 2 in Cana? For the Jewish rites of purification. What does all this mean? Jesus The world's true king. Behold your king. This is Jesus of Nazarene, the king of the Jews. Jesus, the world's true king, he's come to offer himself as the ultimate Passover lamb whose sacrificial death purifies us of our sin. Behold your king and behold the lamb who takes away the sin of the world. David, the great king, he sent out men to die on the battlefield. Jesus, the Messiah king, was sent from the Father to die for believers on the cross. The one who offers unending rivers of living water to the thirsty. 
If anyone comes to me to drink, he will never be thirsty again. The one who offered unending water for the thirsty himself cried, I thirst on the cross. And for his dying thirst, he was given sour wine to drink in order that we may draw water from the wells of salvation and drink the good wine of the kingdom of God. Jesus himself, he he made himself thirsty that we might drink from the living water and never be thirsty forever. He was stripped of his clothing in order that we might be clothed in his righteousness. In John 4, Jesus says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me. In John 18, his drink is the cup that the Father gives him, the cup of death. So he takes the food of doing the work of the Father, dying on the cross, drinks the cup of death, that our food might be his flesh, true food, and that our drink might be his blood, true drink. And all of this, the King, the Lamb of God, does out of love for you and for me. Greater love has no one than this, Jesus said, John 15, that someone lays down his life for his friends. I have called you friends. For God so loved the world that he gave the world his only son. All of this, Jesus did out of love. For you and for me. What does this mean? What does the cross mean? Jesus, the Passover lamb, who drank sour wine from hyssop, whose bones were left unbroken. It was from his side that flowed the living water of the Spirit and the cleansing blood that purifies. Again from Zechariah 13. On that day, when God the King is pierced, on that day there shall be a fountain opened for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. And David cries out in Psalm 51, Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. With joy you shall draw from the waters of salvation. What does this mean? Jesus died on the cross for me. Let's close looking at verse 35. This might actually be the most arresting scene in the whole gospel. John's been recounting the event of Christ's death on the cross. He's providing this rich symbolism, this deep theological meaning, some of which we're getting tonight, not all of it. He's recounting the scene. He's, he's given this, these rich theological symbols. But then he suddenly turns his gaze away from Golgotha and he looks up at you and at me and he talks to you and to me as he's writing this you know there are certain TV shows that I know you watch certain uh, movies for instance The Office right you have all these things going on and suddenly they look up and they talk to you that's what's happening right here John is writing what's going on in the crucifixion. Then he looks up and he looks at you 
and he says something. Verse 35, he who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he's telling the truth, that you also may believe. I saw it. This happened. I saw the blood that cleanses coming out of his side. He's the source of cleansing that the stone water jars could not be. I saw the water, living water, coming out of his side. I was there. I saw it. And I'm telling you all, you people, so that you may believe also. John 20, verse 31. This is where he tells us the purpose of this book. 30 and 31. John has another moment where he looks up from what he's recounting, looks at us, and he says, I have written these things that you may know that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. John's taken pains to write this so that you may believe it and by believing have life in his name. So do you believe it? What does this mean for you? Do you believe Jesus as the Lamb who came to take away your sin? Or are you getting your drink somewhere else? The water in those stone water jars, they failed to truly purify sin. The water in Jacob's well, it failed to truly satisfy thirst. The water at Bethesda, it failed to truly heal. And I don't know what you're looking to. But if you're looking at something other than beholding Jesus, the Lamb of God, slain for the sins of the world, if you're looking to something, to someone other than that, it will fail. Maybe for purification of sin, you're trying to make up for it going to church more, reading your Bible more, trying to do the good things more, taking water from Jewish stone jars for the rites of purification. Those things will not purify you. You can't make yourself right by trying to do better, to take on a new leaf. You can't win more award points. Boyfriends, girlfriends, money, adventure, Water from Jacob's well, they're not going to satisfy. If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Let's pray. What does this mean, Lord? I pray that from tonight and through our reflection on you throughout this holy week, I pray that we'd understand more and more what this means. And God, I pray that we as individuals would know what it means personally to us. And just as the text lifts its gaze up and looks at us. We invite your gaze now, Lord, on us. You see where we're dirty. 
you see what needs to be cleansed and what is yet to be purified. And your blood never fails to do the job. You see where we're just gorging ourselves with false food and false drink when you have true food and true drink. Lord, awaken the thirsty in the room to their thirsts to see how thirsty they are. I pray that tonight we would take water from the one who thirsts on the cross that we may drink drink from the good wine of salvation. Spirit of God, do your work. In your holy name, amen.